and welcome to the 35th episode of the Ocean Decade Show, a podcast dedicated to guiding you down the yellow brick road of this global initiative to transform the ocean, housed within the American Shoreline Podcast Network family. My name is Taylor Gales, and I'm your host and tour guide on our adventure through the Ocean Decade. Uh, almost unintentionally, we've been taking a stroll down Ocean Exploration Lane this year um, and really looking at it from from different angles. Um, <clears throat> the episode, uh, we had... Uh, a month, two months, all time is is lost <laughs> as you get towards the end of the year. With um, with Carly uh, talking about Schmidt Ocean Institute, the conversation that I had in May about the Polar Pod, which I still can't really believe that that's going to be something that is built, but it's <laughs> it's going. Uh, the one in April about the uh, One Ocean Expedition. Um, so it's we really approached this from all angles, but I've realized in the preparation for this show that I don't think I've clearly articulated, at least from my point of view, the importance of ocean exploration and what exactly that means to folks. Um, and while I'm sure there's many different, slightly different, you know, definitions of what constitutes ocean exploration, <clears throat> the NOAA Ocean Exploration Program, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration here in the U.S., describes it as a... Mi- its mission, so its mission as, an, as a program which is all focused on ocean exploration, as exploring the unknown ocean, unlocking its potential through scientific discovery, technological advancements, and data delivery. And this program, the Ocean Exploration Program at NOAA, is filling gaps in our basic understanding of the marine environment. Um, and so that's a lot. <laughs> and how do you build a program or how do you build work off of just exploring? Like, it almost sounds very Victorian and kind of <clears throat> in the oldie days that um, it's science as science was originally kind of concepted in a lot of ways. Um, versus now I, the work I do now and the work that I know a lot of folks do is, you know, science for a purpose. It's science for addressing climate change. You get, you know, sea level rise data to help inform policy in, you know, a locality in a country, something like that. Um, but exploration is just, I think it brings out the, the child in, in a lot of us. And I didn't really mean it to be a theme, but, since ocean exploration is such a big part of the ocean decade, it really gets to that. It relates to all of the, you know, the goals of the ocean decade, but especially that last one and the kind of wonder and the grandeur and thinking of what the ocean can and should be uh, over the next 10 years and beyond. Um, it makes sense that this topic kind of accidentally <laughs> rose to the top of my discussions with a lot of different ocean decade stakeholders. Um, and the growing importance of ocean exploration to the ocean decade can be highlighted by a recent Memorandum of Understanding, MOU, uh, between the Ocean Decade organizers, IOC, UNESCO, and OceanX, a global ocean exploration nonprofit. So IOC and OceanX will be uh, collaborating on a Blue Zone pavilion at COP28 this year. So if you don't know, COP28, the Conference of the Parties, uh, countries come together from all over the world to negotiate um, the Paris Agreement, climate issues. Blue Zone is one of the zones within that. So they're doing a joint pavilion where they'll be hosting events all about ocean decade, ocean exploration, um, as a way to kick off that partnership that this MOU is solidifying. So I think that's really interesting. And I myself am heading to COP28 in, (laughs) who knows, by the time this airs, maybe I'll already be there. But um, so I'll get to check that out and have to report back. Um, And like I said, the fact that the previous episode focused in large part on the Schmidt Ocean Institute, they care a lot about ocean exploration. It's kind of one of their main uh, missions, and it's highly relevant considering that this month's guest is currently aboard their ship, (laughs) the RV Felker 2, which I've been uh, told that that's a very important distinction, and we can talk about it uh, here later. So right now, a team of 21 scientists, artists, communication experts are on board the RV Felker 2, and uh, we'll get into more discussion about the ins and outs of this work, what it means. But in general, on this oceanographic cruise, this team is testing the capabilities of a new way to conduct seafloor mapping. So you can explore a lot of different parts of the ocean. Uh, I don't think there's any one set or one way to, to actually explore the ocean. But I've seen uh, seafloor mapping and that kind of bit as a big part of it because we really don't know there's a... a fact going around that I'd love to I'll <laughs> check with my guest because it, if it's a fact or not that we know more about the surface of the moon than this in you know the bottom of the ocean and um, there's a lot of uh, potential misinformation and miscommunication about that but this cruise is to conduct seafloor mapping um, which is an integral part to any information uh, for oceanographic research 
the whole point of this cruise is to test the one of the points is the revolutionary potential of this new uh, seafloor mapping tool. Um, and the team is exploring the hydrothermal vent fields of the Eastern Galapagos Spreading Center. That's so cool. I was able to go to the Galapagos earlier this year on personal time, not work time. And it's just such a magical area. It lives up to the hype. Uh, and so it's so cool that uh, this team is just out there right now uh, <laughs> doing all this work. Uh, and this isn't my guest's first for- foray out to sea to explore the vast unknown. She spent, it seems like to me from my research, the majority of her career studying these deep sea regions. And uh, I assume has many amazing stories to tell about ocean exploration and life at sea and just the for those of us, I think I've mentioned on the show before that I uh, have the sad state of being a marine scientist who gets incredibly seasick, um, and I'm a social scientist by training, so I've never had a lot of occasion to go out to sea. I've never s- <laughs> sought out those uh, those occasions, but just the, the daily life of that is so interesting because it seems so unknown. It's so away from what we think of as our, our day-to-day and what we do in our day-to-day, but maybe it's not so different. We'll get to find out. Um One other small tidbit I'll leave you with before I introduce my guest is that uh, we share a love of acronyms. In one of the many articles she sent me to help uh, prepare this episode, she was discussing one of the other (laughs) deep sea expeditions and explorations she's been on, a two-week Northeast Pacific deep sea exploration project, or (laughs) I'm going to laugh while I say this, she likes to pronounce it Neep Deep so that it sounds like a robot, which really gave me so much joy, as you can tell that I can't stop laughing even when I'm saying it now. Um, and she also said, and I quote, and I really feel this very deep down, um, this is where I find joy in these silly little acronyms. So um, I feel exactly the same way, Sharice. <laughs> so I'm introducing today my fantastic guest uh, straight from the RV Falcor 2, Dr. Sharice Dupree, a deep sea explorer and marine biologist who studies animals living on the seafloor far below the sunlit surface. She uses underwater cameras to document previously unexplored environments and the animals that call them home, many that are new to science. She's particularly fond of using remotely operated uh, vehicles, ROVs, to map and characterize complex 3D environments, moderating changes over time at sub-centimeter resolutions, a resolution that this host cannot even wrap uh, her mind around. That's pretty crazy, especially because I'm an American and we didn't grow up on the metric system, but still, that's pretty small. Um, she works for Fisheries and Oceans Canada, DFO, to establish and monitor large marine protected areas around hydrothermal vents, seamounts, cold seeps, and other deep sea hotspots of biological diversity in Pacific Canada and the high seas. <clears throat> she strives to align her research program with commitments to the co-creation of knowledge with Indigenous people, the incorporation of traditional knowledge, and nation-to-nation cooperative management and monitoring, as well as diversity, inclusion, and sharing science through, quote, different ways of knowing which I'm pretty sure if you go back through my master's thesis, I used a variation of the phrase different ways of knowing about 10,000 times. So I really appreciate that. Um, in addition to being a scientist, Sharice is also a Canadian delegate an adjunct professor at the university of Victoria and an avid science communicator. I can understand Sharice, why you don't get to sleep that much. Goodness. That is quite a biography. Yeah, that was really fun to listen to, and uh, and then when I got lis- lost in listening to you, uh, I I forgot that it was me. I was like, oh, this sounds fun. <laughs> Let's hear this person. <laughs> I hope that everyone listening feels that same way when we release this episode because you are just so cool in reading about you, and it's that's what my keeps me doing this podcast is getting to talk to cool people that I otherwise wouldn't have any reason to, to speak to. Um, so it's, it's such a joy. Thanks for joining me uh, from the, I don't know, is the middle of the ocean. Does it count as the middle of the ocean where you are? Would you classify it as that? I think so, because we can't see land most of the time. And I think even if you said Galapagos was, you know, close to us, it's still the middle of the ocean for most people. So uh, yeah, Sharice Debris coming to you live from the middle of the ocean. <laughs> so I gave a lot of your background based on what I could find and read about you, which I got semi-obsessed doing that a few weeks ago and all the great links that you sent me. But can you tell me from your perspective about who you are and then specifically what's been your path to the ocean decade and your involvement thus far? Yeah. So, um, I mean, I'm, I'm a deep sea explorer. Yep. Somebody actually pays us to do that kind of work, uh, which is incredible. And the government of Canada, too. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, 
so I, uh, I, you know, get to explore those hidden places in the dark abyssal realms of our planet, which might sound like foreign to most people, but I will remind everybody that that is the majority of the planet. You know, we're the anomaly, the human beings that walk around on land and breathe air. The majority of our planet is that dark place hidden below the waves that is a world of flashing lights and barely any sound. And so I study the majority of the planet and, uh, yeah, I do that for Fisheries and Oceans Canada. I also do that for the University of Victoria, where I hold an adjunct position. And for me, um, the ocean decade just made sense. I was uh, I was doing this type of work, um, providing science advice for the government of Canada um, to get us to goals, to national goals, to international goals to protect the ocean for ocean conservation. And really when the slogan came out, um, you know, uh, the science we need for the ocean we want with the ocean decade, I was like, yeah, yeah, I do that. This makes sense. And so uh, every aspect of my work already aligned with it, but I made sure that the collaboration was there so that I could feed into the ocean decade and uh, it could feed back into my science and uh, the two could bolster each other. And so now every expedition I do is an ocean decade endorsed activity. Um, I collaborate with uh, projects from the ocean decade, like the Challenger 150. And then I actually just submitted for Neep Deep, Neep Deep, uh, to become an ocean decade endorsed project too. So uh, here's, here's looking forward to a whole bunch more years working with the ocean decade. I think you are like the IOC's dream because they're exactly, you're exactly what they wanted when people, you know, when they announced the ocean decade and getting people to, to join on board. Cause it's, it's hard to sometimes get people interested. It's a new thing. How long is it going to last? What's it going to do? But you are there, like they should put you up on pedestals because you just <laughs> give all the good reasoning for them. I mean, I feel I feel the exact same way about them because, you know, we are confined to some boxes uh, with our work, even though it's the big ocean. It was still, you know, for a long time, it was within the borders of Canada or, you know, to the national targets. And the ocean decade gave us something to strive for that was bigger than ourselves. And that's what makes me the most excited about the ocean decade is then I could start crossing borders and going for the nation-to-nation collaborations, especially within our, you know, with what's considered, you know, to most people, Canada, but our nation-to-nation collaborations with the First Nations, the Indigenous people, I mean, the Ocean Decade just gave me the reason, not uh, not the reason, the ability to say, hey, I'm, I'm going to do this and I'm going to pursue these collaborations because that's what we've aligned ourselves to do. And it's been so exciting. Well, I'm so glad and your work is just so fascinating in getting to kind of spur along what it means to, you know, study the ocean and really and what is in the ocean because that's the biggest question is what's in it? What does it look like? How do we, you know, interact with it? And then comes the questions, you know, of how do you manage it? How do you do X, Y, and Z? Um so and this is probably varies based on if you're on a ship, if you're not, but what is a week in your research, in your life kind of look like? What does it mean to be a deep sea explorer when you're both at sea and then not at sea? Yeah. So I don't want to burst anyone's bubble, but being a marine biologist and a deep sea explorer usually uh, has me sitting in an office chair in front of many screens, uh, answering a lot of emails. And uh, yeah, but, but, that's about what mine is too. I have a marine science degree too. And that's, yeah, people were bursting your bubbles, yeah. but yeah, that's what it is. Um, but if you answer enough emails, uh, then you get to go out to sea uh, and you go to actually explore um, this place. Um, I'll skip, I'll skip past the at sea part and tell you that once you find yourself back in the office, you have to take what seems like otherworldly data, images, experiences, and then you have to turn that back into computer talk, into, you know, black and white numbers that go into spreadsheets and stuff. So you go full circle and you end up back in, in an office chair. But that that time in between, and for me it happens sometimes three times a year for a couple of weeks up to a month, sometimes more, 
I get to go out on these large oceanic expeditions. And Taylor, just a tidbit, um, the key to avoiding seasickness is to go out on ships so large that they don't rock. See, maybe that's where I've been going wrong because I did my research um, and I did some work in the Chesapeake Bay on the in Virginia, Maryland of in the U.S. and those are not big ships. <laughs> no, um, I'm sorry to say I often forget I'm on a ship on uh, Falkor too because it is just that large. But yes, uh, if you want to give it another shot, I would highly recommend uh, a state-of-the-art oceanic expedition ship like this and you should have no problem. Yep. <laughs> that is really good to know. I had it, but it's funny because I had friends in grad school who studied in Antarctica too. And so seeing the videos of the Drake Passage too, that just scares you. In- <laughs> okay, fair <laughs> enough. You got to choose the right study location too. Choose the right yeah, study location. Yeah. Exactly. Like the tropical Eastern Pacific, that's, you know, Galapagos. That's it. Yeah. So when I'm out here on these ships, uh, my job, uh, I think, is uh, the coolest. I'm biased, but. Um, what I do is I work with the ROV pilots. ROV stands for Remotely Operated Vehicles. And they're basically submarine robots that descend into the ocean while we scientists and pilots stay on board the ship in a control room that looks a lot like a NASA space mission control room. And we virtually dive into the deep sea in real time. Uh, the robot has... Uh, two arms, it's got very dexterous uh, cameras and sensors, and we can take this robot and put it into very precarious places, uh, like right now, we're actually diving on active hydrothermal vents that are 300 degrees Celsius, and we can get right into these areas, and then I use the video cameras, 4K cameras on board, to basically spy on the somewhat alien life that lives there and uh and characterize uh who's down there what are they doing and literally explore and so i mentioned the vent that we're at uh we're explorers uh and we just discovered a brand new hydrothermal vent field uh just about an hour ago and we're diving on it right now that is so that is so cool Can you, because I don't know, I assume everyone listening might know what a hydrothermal vent is, but can you, I don't want to, I shouldn't assume, can you describe what those ecosystems are a little bit? Yeah, so hydrothermal vents on land is much more familiar to people. Um, They're hot springs. They're areas where uh, warm water comes out of the Earth's surface. And uh, on land, they make lovely little pools that sometimes uh, humans like to build spas around. And then we go to those pools and we relax in them. Uh, If anyone's been to the Banff Hot Springs (laughs) or something like that. So those are hot springs on land. Now, uh, the hot springs uh, on the ocean floor are much more interesting than a day at the spa. Um, And they come out a lot hotter. So instead of, you know, nice bath water that makes being outside in the snow okay, uh, we're looking at temperatures in excess of 350 degrees Celsius. Um, It's shooting out of the earth. And with it, it's carrying reduced chemicals that it dissolved out of the earth on its way up. And to, to make a long story short, what hydrothermal vents do is actually gives life a footing on this planet in the absence of sunlight. So that chemical reaction, that heat that it brings up actually allows chemosynthesis instead of photosynthesis. Photosynthesis being an energy of food web derived from sunlight. We're all familiar with that. Hot springs, hydrothermal vents are so amazing that they exist at the bottom of the ocean. They're superheated. And actually, it's a life that doesn't rely on the sun. And so there are animals there that live nowhere else on the planet, and they are not consuming sunlight. They are consuming chemical energy from inside the earth. And if that isn't something that is out of this world, then I, I don't know what else to tell you. It sounds very like metal too, you know, it's like so intense. Like it's not like you're, because <laughs> like I scuba dive and you get to see the places where the light goes and you see, you know, pretty corals and pretty fish, but this is like, you know, a different level of, of the ocean, <laughs> literally and <laughs> metaphorically, I guess. 
Yeah, we do the serene, peaceful um, descent and we see all the pelagic animals and the light show and it's beautiful and it's very, but then we, uh, then we cherry pick the parts of the seafloor where there's action. And, and as far as the seafloor goes, hydrothermal vents are about as action packed as you can get explosive, superheated. Most animals can't live there. It's toxic, but then the animals that do live there live nowhere else on the planet. And, Actually, I keep bringing up the planet and out of this world. Um, we work a lot with NASA scientists because it is thought that if there is going to be life in our solar system other than on Earth, it is probably at hydrothermal vents that exist on other planets in our solar system, which is pretty pretty cool or hot. That is so cool. Cool or hot, yeah. <laughs> and so going back to what I had kind of mentioned in the, in the preview, um, that – do we know more about the seafloor than uh, the surface of the moon or vice versa? Is is that an ad- accurate kind of comparison, do you think? They're such different ecosystems. I mean, yes. And I think, I think what's important about that comparison, and I do love it, um, is even just standing on Earth at night, you could see the moon. You could see the craters. Sometimes you can see the man in the moon, like, and it is, it is easy, relatively speaking, to look through our sky to a whole other planet and make out features on it. You cannot do that to the ocean. If you stand on a boat or on the beach and you look down at the ocean, you are not seeing the seafloor. You lose the seafloor or you lose the ability to see through the sea pretty quickly within meters of the surface. Um, most people know our ocean as big, blue, expansive. Um, it's, it's not visible to us. And that, that kind of hurts the ocean because people need to connect. And so, yeah, we do Seen know Seeing is believing. Yeah. Seeing is believing. And the opposite of that is out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, and that can make it really difficult to be able to, you know, study this and understand it, and then <laughs> probably in a lot of cases to get funding for it, um, especially because there's there's beauty of that kind of exploration, but um, the the goal, you know, is exploration. You know, and, and, and is there other goals that you see about ocean exploration from your perspective and your purview in in working in this this area of marine science? Yeah, so. The exploration has to be for a point. Um, I wouldn't do it. Probably nobody would pay me to do it if it was just for fun. Well, actually, that's not exactly true. Um, I do get to work. There's some tech billionaires out there who just yeah. throw money at things. Also, you know? I get to work with BBC a lot on productions. And I mean, that's that's really fun because that's exploration for, um, you know, connecting the global public to the ocean. But um I think what's really important about the type of exploration I do is that it's to inform, it's science advice to inform policy, whether that's to Canada, to its coastal First Nations, to the United Nations. One of the hats that I wear is to the International Seabed Authority, which is tasked with the regulation of deep sea mining. So it's always, it's always for something. And What's, I think, the most important part of the exploration that I do is actually maybe counterintuitive to what most people think. It's not exactly, I mean, a little bit is how we can protect the ocean, but a lot of it is actually uncovering how much we rely on the ocean, whether we know it or not. And we actually rely on the deep sea so much more than you would imagine. Those hydrothermal vents I was talking about, there's like two degrees of separation to life as we know it and enjoy it and the ecosystem functions of these hydrothermal vents that seem remote and far away, but are actually providing us with so many ecosystem services that it really is in our best interest to make sure they're okay. You can go the route where you just appreciate nature and animals for the marvels that they are and want to protect them. But if you don't want to go that route, there's actually there's good reason to make sure that these natural habitats stay intact, stay protected, um, because we rely on their functions. And that's my favorite type of exploration 
is uncovering how reliant we are so that we can be actioned to do, in my mind, the right thing, which is conservation and protection for sustainability. That's, I, I hadn't really ever so eloquent, eloquently connected those two bits before. Eloquently? <laughs> Sorry. However we say it, eloquently, <laughs> yes. As ever, yes, people, you should know listening to this episode that, yeah, both Sharice uh, and I are suffering with some sleep deprivation and some lingering colds in dealing with pronunciation. So it makes this podcast human. Um, <laughs> but just, you know, weaving the exploration with conservation with practicality and finding that kind of balance because you can't have one without the other the scale can't be weighed one way and then too much and weighed the other way too much um so that's it to me looking from the outside that's kind of been the narrative of your career almost too is figuring out how to to balance that and tell all these stories and move forward in this space that's so wonderful to hear because sometimes you just go years at a time <laughs> and you're like what was I trying to do you got kind of check in with yourself and you're like am I still doing that thing that I told myself as a kid I was gonna do and it's like yeah I'm on the right path it is great and that's what I found is really helpful about the ocean decade too so I'll get to this question for you later too <laughs> is I, I ask every single one of the guests what they consider a successful decade and having these time periods and being able to look forwards and backwards and really delineated in that humans need that. We need structure. We need ability to, to measure and think and look forward and look back. And so half of the value of the decade in my mind, it has a lot of value, but is just the ability to have this kind of almost global focus and global pause of like, where are we going? What does it look like? How do we, you know, there's obviously we have to do a lot of things to, you know, mitigate the worst impacts of climate change and try to adjust, but there's all these other bits and bobs too that are, you can't tackle one problem then another because um, we don't have enough time. So you have to think about the conservation of biodiversity in a really holistic way. And I think the, the decade's doing a good job at it. Yes, spot, spot on. Sorry. <laughs> I was like listening to you and I got lost and I'm like, wait, no, I'm, I'm involved. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I'm very glad that I, I sound eloquent sometimes yeah i get in the middle of a sentence i'm like what am i saying what am i doing See, but my structure is necessary look at us even in one structure sentence, is we got so, lost. <laughs> i know um so you're on an expedition now and speaking of kind of looking back how many have you been on do you know a count and do you remember your very first expedition i didn't count some people count and some people actually count down to the hours which i think is really neat yeah, and maybe I didn't count because I didn't oh, think wow. that this could be my life. Maybe I thought the first and yeah, but um, it's enough to lose count. Uh, 30, 40, 50. Uh, I'm not sure, but yeah, that's <laughs> that's neat. Uh, I should look back on that and, and think on it and maybe write some things down. But I do, I do remember my first because it was quite a first. Um, I got to go to the North Pole. Wow. Yeah. Not, uh, not an expedition that many grad students get to go on, but I was aboard the Amundsen, uh, the Canadian Coast Guard ship Amundsen, which, uh, fun fact for Canadian listeners, if you have a $50 bull in your pocket and you pull it out, the ship on that bull is, uh, is the Amundsen, um, and if you don't remember what that looks like, it's probably because you don't use cash anymore and you can be forgiven. But if you ever have money on you again and you see that Red Bull, that ship is uh, is my first ship. Um, so if you want to give me that 50 as a keepsake, feel free to. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we got to go explore uh, the the deep sea up in um, up in the north. And it was it was thrilling. It was one month. And that ship was so cool. Um, not many ships have this. I didn't realize this at the time. But that ship actually had a moon pool. And if you don't know what a moon pool no, is. No, I don't know what that is. Yeah. No. Um, it's in a lot of, uh, I would say, like sh like Bond films or Mike Myers, you know, kind of things where they're like the typical, uh, you know, 
evil genius with his boat and then the boat opens up at the bottom and the submarine goes right through the ship into the ocean <gasps> yeah that's a moon pool so that's like that's how they escape or you know that's yeah so uh that is very bond villain oh my gosh <laughs> yeah so the sub went right through um the ship which was so cool it made total sense because it was an icebreaker and you can't deploy a submersible over the side of the ship if you're surrounded by ice. So they needed a moon pool on that boat. And um, actually, I don't think I've been on board another ship with that until right now. Um, the Falcor actually has a, a moon pool in it. And it's quite weird to stand over it because you're in the ship. And if you look through the cracks, you can see the bright blue ocean below. And you're like... I'm not a ship builder, but I feel like there shouldn't be a hole here, you know? <laughs> I oh, Every time I see, because my, my day job, I work on maritime shipping decarbonization. So I've learned a weird amount about ships, but not shipbuilding. And it's just always, every time I see a ship, it's like, how do you float? How does this work? It's just fantastical. It doesn't seem, <laughs> and I'm from inland United States. And so every time, it just, the ocean for me still is like a big deal every time. So crazy. Um, but what that's question. Yeah, no, I, think I don't we got think there. that was. I think we were just <laughs> discussing, and that's just so interesting. The, the I, I like that kind of parallel that we didn't even realize was there between your first trip and your current trip. You know, of having that um, kind of <laughs> moon pool. That's so cool. What does this is just a very interesting practical bit for me? Is like, how do you plan for these trips? Especially if you go on a few a year, I feel like you're planning for one, but also planning for the next. Like. What does the logistics of that look like if you're at sea for, you know, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks? Yeah. Um, I'm very spoiled when I'm at home because from my office, I can actually see the docks where our ships are tied up. And um, yeah, my <laughs> commute to my deep sea expedition is me walking across the grassy lawn and going to the ship, which is really nice and a lot easier than flying to Costa Rica and driving to the coastline and then boarding a foreign vessel and sailing out to the Galapagos. So yeah, you do end up planning uh, and planning while you're on boats for the, the next one. Um, it takes a team. Uh, I think that's, that's another really great thing about the ocean decade is it made it that we could action things together as a team. Um, so I'm the head of the deep sea ecology program, but it takes a team to get me out to sea. Um, it takes a team to get the ships ready. Uh, we have to take everything out with us. Luckily, nowadays you have 3D printers and we use them a lot on the ship, but you can't just pop out because something broke and you need to go to a hardware store. Like you need a plan to bring everything from enough toothpaste and shampoo to enough technical pieces that you could take down to hydrothermal vents and you know not melt and be completely sealed so the the ocean doesn't destroy it and and then everything in between um your favorite snacks uh as well as enough test tubes for all the dna samples you're going to collect it's a it's a lot of packing uh, a lot of logistics and you inevitably forget something but yeah thank goodness for 3d printers you obviously can't 3D print your favorite snacks, but like other receptacles or things or, you know, fixing little <laughs> tools or something like that. Absolutely. Yeah. No. Um, but, you know, the Falcor operates 24-7, uh, uh, you know, all year round as a floating research platform. So there's everyone on here with all of their stuff. We have um, chefs. Uh, there's stews, there's engineers, there's, um, it is a floating city. And so it's fantastic that they're incredibly well equipped because they have new scientists come aboard every month and they need to, you know, have everything ready um, and functional. Uh, and some of that actually is anticipate what the scientists are going to forget and please have more of it. <laughs> I know this. I I didn't even realize when I mentioned you know the the team on the the ship. I just did the ones that are on the expedition, but not obviously the hordes and hordes of other people who are on the ship in order to keep it running. So that yeah, I, I assume then that brings the estimate up to what 50, 60 people on the ship at a time. Is that yeah? yeah um, 
easily. It's really funny because we've been out here for about a month and still like at meals when we, we go to the, um, the galley, uh, people will pop up for the first time. You're like, wait a second. We've been on this <laughs> ship for a month. Where have you been? And uh, th- there's day crew, night crew, and then we work crazy hours. There's different floors. So you don't necessarily run into everybody all the time, but it's really, it's weird when you've been out here a month and then you're like, did you just get on this boat? <laughs> did you come in through the moon pool? How did you get yeah. here? <laughs> Coming through the moon pool. We have to close that. Yeah, no, um, so there's, there's a lot of us, and uh, we also have outreach uh, communicators, artists, um, movie makers, um, and and, th- and thank goodness we have a, a captain too, which is a very important role. Yeah. <laughs> yes, keep it all going. Wow. Yeah, I, I should always interview people who are slightly tired because then I sound even funnier, so I really appreciate you. <laughs> <laughs> really appreciate all of this, but you actually went really well to one of the things I was thinking about too, is that in uh, a lot of the links that you had sent me, you have a, a lot of stuff on YouTube and like videos of expeditions. And I, I've it, in my time studying marine science. And I think that's something that those videos of those, you know, alien environments has been something that's gotten a lot of, and I, and I hate this phrase, but general public really engaged and interested in this sector and these spaces. Um, but, uh, why have you chosen to like really focus on, on that? Uh, and how have you seen engagement, you know, change over the course of your career with social media and lots of things like you can really reach more people and reach them live in real time with what I've seen of the setup of the, of the Falker two to the kind of, um, (laughs) basically like you could produce a movie from that thing. It seems like. Yeah. No, the live streaming is, uh, absolutely crazy. Okay, so um, let's just quantify this. I think my career is 15 years in the making since I first went out to sea. So I've been around not too long. I didn't predate ships or anything like that. Uh, But I I definitely predated accessible email. I remember standing in line at the bridge, which is where the captain is, you know, waiting to send an email. And now we have a little bit, creepy big brother-ish but we have cameras all around the boat especially in the control room so you could watch us controlling the vehicle or you could watch the stream from the vehicle live and that's actually pretty standard on every expedition i do now is i stream everything in real time so the world can watch and explore the ocean and go on this journey to feel how amazing the ocean is to feel the sense of wonder that is discovering a place together. And then of course, when the amazing things happen as they inevitably do, uh, the world is just a click away to engaging. And if we see something that's incredible down there, the next thing you know, a million people are there watching with us, experiencing it. And then ah, the magic happens where people feel ownership. They were there. They watched it live. This was their animal encounter too. I get a lot of that after my expeditions is remember when we did this and I'm like, yeah, you were there. Like you were there with us. That's so awesome. A lot of wees. Um, and so, so that's incredible to go from, you know, waiting in line for dial up email to streaming everything live and having people Millions of people around the world say, we, we did this. We accomplished this. And yeah, I don't know. I just got lost in how amazing that feeling is because it's, it's pretty rad. That's very, you know, kind of space-like too, almost from the, you know, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind kind of thing. And like, I, I think you, ocean exploration and what y- you all can do is bringing that to the ocean space. And uh, you know, you get pictures of, you know, when you discovered new species and like you've done that this year and you're, it's just <laughs> what an incredible thing to write on a grant report after the fact, you know? You know, if I could take us on a, a little side jaunt um, just because we Please. keep bringing up space. So hydrothermal vents were discovered by accident in the late 1970s where we are right now. So we are at the holy grail of deep sea exploration. This is where geologists actually were, they couldn't understand where the heat budget of the planet was going. 
And so a bunch of geologists took out subs and they went down to just find out where the heat was escaping from. It had to go somewhere. They thought, ah, we know where it is. So they came to the Galapagos. They came to the Galapagos Spreading Ridge and they thought they would find a heat source. And when they went down, their geologists, to look at all their pretty rocks, they were like, these rocks are covered by things these terrible things. And then, you know, of course it occurred to them, these things can't exist, not in the way that we know life on earth works. And so that was the first discovery of chemosynthetic animals and these animals that exist on our planet without sunlight. And on our dives yesterday and the day before, we found the drop weights. So submarines used to come down with heavy weights and then when they wanted to come up they would drop their weight and then they would float it's very sophisticated um yeah yeah. we found the drop weights from that first expedition no way yeah that is so badass that is so cool (laughs) so we actually likened it to um we found we found the footsteps we found the first footsteps on the moon this is where we we, you know, humans, revolutionized how we think about life on our planet and other planets um, was right here. And we saw those drop weights and we were sitting in front of the same hydrothermal vents that they sat in front of it. And they were like, get these animals out of here. <laughs> <laughs> and just that was yeah. in what, the 70s, you said? And so how far we've come oh, in. That was yesterday. Oh, well, when they dropped the weights. No, no, I know. But in terms of like scientific discoveries, I'm just saying. It's like yesterday. It was yesterday. Not even 50 years ago, we didn't think this ecosystem could exist on our planet. Um, You know, where, where Charles Darwin, you know, sailed the seas and revolutionized how we thought about evolution and ecology and life and he was sailing over the hydrothermal vents that you know decades later would once again revolutionize how we think about life on our planet and then here comes Sharice and her team and we're down here again <laughs> and just an hour ago we we'll found add you to the history books <laughs> give me a few more decades in in the field and and maybe i'll get my little footnote somewhere but well, yeah it yeah. feels like we're part of it doesn't it yeah. yeah well darwin was only in the galapagos like six weeks or something so think of what you can do with you know 40 something more years four i haven't written a single book well remember with all these you know the one thing about victorian explorers and that sort of thing is that they had people doing stuff for them (laughs) you know like Ah. like the walden pond i always love this example people like oh yes you know he went and wrote in a cabin and made all these great things his mom did his laundry and like brought him food every day so it's like okay that's very different that's so funny but if you asked my partner she'd probably say it's very similar (laughs) (laughs) There is a reason my husband didn't want me to go into academia and why I stopped at my master's. So, (laughs) Yeah, we get very sidetracked and then we don't move until we figure out whatever puzzle, be it an hour or a day or a week. Um, Yeah, thank goodness. Thank goodness for the people around us. One bit I want to make sure that we talk about, because it's so important to what you do not necessarily on this expedition, but potentially is the kind of collaboration with the Coastal First Nations and how you said that I love what you'd said earlier about how the collaboration of the Ocean Decade kind of gave you that opening and just how have you been able to incorporate that work into your work and why has it been so important to you? So many. Yeah, so many ways to tackle this. Um, Which I know is a big question. It's Maybe it's too simple, but it's important because it's the right thing to do, you know? Um, And I think that I'm fortunate that it's a no-brainer off the Pacific coast of Canada. Um, And I say that, you know, I want to give myself some credit, but some things are just so obvious that that should be it. And one of my favorite examples of, of course, you can't go explore the ocean without the Coastal Forest Nations is um, the Haida Nation uh, and their direct ties to deep sea environments. So 
you'll indulge me for a, a moment. There is always seamount off Haidaguay, um, which is is uh, a part of the ocean that I study, uh, and a seamount is an underwater volcano. When sea levels were different, it was actually an island about 150 kilometers offshore. And the Haida people know it as Skan Kingless, which in their stories and in their lived experience is their supernatural being looking outwards. And so they have all this oral history and tradition with this island that because of natural sea level rises actually sunk back into the ocean and is now an underwater feature. Absolutely incredible. Three kilometers tall. Uh, summit's just shy of breaking the surface. Um, and it's it's now known as Scon Kingless Bowie. Um, and it's phenomenal in every kind of way uh, possible for the ecology of it and the animals. But then the other aspect of it is its spiritual and cultural significance. And uh, it's in the name. I also, we could do a whole podcast on names, but I think names are so important. And UNDRIP, um, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. And so going to these places without them, and without their contribution and capacity sharing um, and also naming, because so much of this discovery ends up in naming places, uh, it would just it would be simply wrong. And uh, and this is the right way to do it. And so the ocean decade, uh, you know, and the commitments to UNDRIP and then these coastal First Nations who have the capacity and the want to do nation-to-nation co-management of these incredible places, and this is just one of them, doesn't even take a scientist. It's just the right thing to do. We could just know, we could just hear the story and know that it's right. And so uh, I love that there was a, a mechanism and a path that was set in front of me to, to seize those opportunities and to make that happen. And so we go out to see together and uh, independent of who in my team uh, makes the discoveries, we we hand over naming rights. And it's not just the Haida Nation, it's the Nuchalna, the Quatsino, the Pachidat, it's hydrothermal vents and underwater seamounts and cold seeps and all the places of the, the deep sea that, again, give us those benefits and those services that we rely on. We're out there exploring together and then coming up with proposals for protection and conservation, naming the places together. And then it's we, it's us, it's, it's them. It's not, it's not Canada did this, it's we did this. And I think that's what's so important about Neep Deep and, and doing this all under the United Nations Ocean Decade is if it was Canada's goal and we asked them to join us, there's, that's great, but I feel like there's like, there's a, a weakness to that a little bit, um, but it's, it's not, it's a, it's a global goal and we're doing it together as a team and that makes it incredibly special. Well, I just got lost in that. That was a beautiful way to describe that. And that's just a true example of what collaboration is and not for show. You know, one of the big things that that I worry about with all of these projects around the world and things is having parachute science, you know, and then not including local people and not being able to really have them feel ownership over things. But, uh, it's just like breathing for you. And it's, you're a very special, unique person for being able to describe it that way and being able to bring it into your work. So kudos on that. Ah, oh, that's, that's very kind. And this is when I'd be like, no, 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 it's, <laughs> It's the team and it's the it's the want. And I'm so fortunate that there's things like the ocean decade and the appetite to see this kind of work done. And uh, maybe a little bit the right person, but a lot the right timing and um, the available resources. And yeah, I do think that parachute science is a thing and it's a thing to be very aware of as a scientist. And I think the scientists that have the capacity and the resources are the one who need to be responsible for making sure that they're not doing that. And so bringing it back to where I am right now in the Galapagos, uh, we have um, 
people from the Charles Darwin Research Center on board. We have uh, locals on board. Um, we do everything in, in collaboration. And I think a really important thing is everything we collect for international science, we collect an equal uh, anything, be it uh, animal specimen rock whatever the case is collect the maps collect the photos the equal goes to the local governments and to the parks um, and the marine protected areas um, and I think that's that's a that's a minimum that's where you need to start that's so cool to know about yeah what you do when you're in Canada and then things you know happening right now on the ship that's awesome um so like I said I was gonna bring you back to this uh, as we got closer to the end but and I ask everyone this, speaking of the ocean decade overall, you know, there's lots of goals, lots of ways to move forward. But, you know, by the time we reach 2030 and look back, what would have happened for you to have considered it a successful decade? Hmm. <laughs> I know. And some people answer from, you know, their very specific lens or a goal overall or like some are more general and there's no right or wrong answer. I just love seeing all the ways people's minds work for this. <laughs> yeah. So my job is establishing marine protected areas and the status quo would be for me to do that in Canada and for Canada. Um, if I can do that in Canada with all the people that live there, um, celebrating it, benefiting from it equally, feeling equal ownership, that would be my primary goal is that common ownership, that it was authentic. Um, I would also like to add that the marine protected areas that we're trying to establish based on absolute new discoveries, if I can get those set up by the end of the decade, so they, they weren't planned, they weren't expected, we weren't looking for them, Yet together we found special places, throw a couple out there, like the octopus nursery that we found at the cold seeps this past summer, or the five million deep sea skate eggs that are on an active volcano that we never knew were there. Those were real surprises. And if we as a team can action together to make marine protected areas out of things that nobody knew were there, and actually do something completely novel, I think that would be incredible. Um, and I would love to see those new discoveries protected in a timely manner, because I do think that impacts are going faster and faster, and that action needs to keep up with it. So time is a big component. And since I'm being greedy with my wish list, great. Um, some of the stuff that I do happens outside of even Canada's jurisdiction. And it's something I feel very passionate about is that the United Nations Ocean Decade is a contribution to global ocean health. And so as a Canadian scientist, if I can provide information and science to make marine protected areas in the high seas, which is the largest ecosystem on the planet, uh, and the one that's, you know, been ignored the most historically because it doesn't belong to any one person. Yeah, so a little bit suffering of the, um, let's say, the tragedy of the commons. But what we do in our borders isn't going to stand for much unless we have that same actioning in the high seas. And so 30% 30 protect, 30 protection in Canada is great, but unless you have an equal 30% protection at our neighbors or across the border in the high seas, you know, the ocean doesn't care about the, the polygons that we drew. Like it wants to function as a whole system. And so leaving our waters to help our neighbors, to help the high seas, like that's, that's the next frontier for me is to make sure that we're going beyond what's safe and close to home. Um, and stepping out into that frontier to make sure that we're delivering global ocean health. So back to our, you know, space and ocean metaphor, you know, is the ocean the final frontier? Is the is space the final frontier? The high seas, I think, and the deep ocean are the final, final frontiers of of ocean work. I mean, yeah, you're just stepping closer and closer to the edge. Like there is 
Yeah. And then the next thing you know, you'll be back at land because you cross the ocean and you're on the other side. So this, this really is, this is it. This is the big challenge on our planet. And I think it's going to be a really important um, decision-making process that is, it's going to be made by the public. And again, that's why it comes back to um, sharing and the whole we and discovering together is because these decisions are going to be made by policymakers, but largely based on public opinion and um, voting with our dollars. And we're going to make some pretty big decisions in the coming years. And as long as they're informed decisions and we are actively making them, then that's all I can ask for. Those are That's a great wish list. I will add that to the tally of I should go back at some point and listen to what everyone says and make a whole list and, and then send it to the IOC and have them cry in front of me. Um, no, but it, or they could check some of them off at some point. Um, so after you get off this boat and go back to what's what's next for you? Are you going out to sea again next year? Or like how, how are you going to um, readjust back to land? Mm-hmm. Um, I go back to Canada and then I pretty quickly turn it around and I go do the other part of my job, which is uh, attending meetings on behalf of Canada. And in this case, it'll be to the International Seabed Authority to provide uh, science for decision-making with regards to deep sea mining. And then the next thing you know, you blink and it's summer again, and we're going to do year two of Neat Deep. So I'm really looking forward to that. (laughs) So it'll be, it'll be, oh, so you, um, yeah, we'll be back out to sea with our robots and, uh, and following up, following up on the discoveries we made last year, getting the data that we need to make those protections and, uh, and then exploring new areas. You do so much hat switching just so <laughs> that's, yeah, that's going back, but they all inform each other, but yeah, ch- transitioning from, you know, wearing your fancy fancies clothes and at the international seabed authority. And then, you know, probably I would assume a little grimy on a ship, but I don't know, maybe not. And just the, the oh, diversity. Yeah. No, I'm wearing, I'm wearing a uh, purple knockoff Crocs right now. What to- are knockoff Crocs called? I don't know. Mocks. <laughs> that would be a great name for them. If it was, I don't know. I, I, yeah, there's a thing with shoes on mm-hmm. boats and you come out here with all the shoes, like the steel toes, but they're not the shoes you want to wear when you're not working on the decks. So uh, yeah, everyone else had Crocs. So I went to a little shop uh, in Costa Rica and the closest thing I could find is bright purple mocks. So here I am. So yes, hat changing or shoe changing. Ooh, I don't know. Yeah, maybe that's a better better test <laughs> of, a, of a female scientist is what shoes you have to wear to change because there are those double yeah. standards everywhere. Um, <laughs> but where can the audience go to learn more about you, the, the expedition, and you know the work that DFO is doing in the Ocean Decade? Kind of, Are there some, some links or things you want to make sure to mention and we can make sure to drop for people? Yeah, yeah. Um- I made I made Neep Deep pretty easy, so it's hashtag Neep Deep, uh, which is N E P D E P, um, just like how it sounds. <laughs> just like how it sounds. <laughs> it, like- it's it's. I bet a Star Wars, you know, some sort of creature in Star Wars makes that noise. Oh like, yeah. If you um if you watch us, we you know you get slap happy when you're on these expeditions and you don't sleep. We also do a lot of pew pews, uh, which I think is Star Wars or Star Trek. <laughs> that is a very Star Wars thing. Oh yeah. my goodness! Um, yeah, so it's hashtag Neep Deep, or the handle is Neep Deep, and then underscore, and then there's me, uh, and my handle on every social media is uh, is my name, keeping it simple. So it's just Sharice uh, Dupree and. And then, yeah, it's I post about all the expeditions uh, I'm involved in, but then of course our partners are involved in too. And uh, there's always something wonderful going on out at sea. So, uh, and a lot of streaming live. Uh, so, if you want to join in the adventure, the discovery, um, definitely look us up, and we can give you that fix of what else exists on our planet in the dark, watery realm of the deep sea. And become part of the we. Yeah, exactly. join us. <laughs> well, this is probably one of the most fun I've ever had while recording an episode. So thank you so much for your for your time, 
for you know taking time while you're out in the middle of a middle of the ocean uh, doing this important work. I really appreciate your your candor and your thoughtfulness and just uh, teaching us about this incredible world. Ah, Taylor, thank you so much for having me on and letting me talk to the audience. And uh, it has been a lot of fun. So uh, I hope we said good things. <laughs> I hope so too. I never, this is a fun fact that I've never listened to an episode of this in full, of this podcast in full, because I can't stand my voice. I just, I can't do it. Okay, so well, I, you and me both, um, I never either. So let's just make a pack that we, we knocked it out of the park and we did awesome. Yes. Okay, fantastic. That, we'll tell everyone that. Great. <laughs> Check done. Uh, yeah, let us know if you think differently, people, when you when you end up listening. Or but. Don't. <laughs> or don't. Yeah, maybe just keep that to yourself. It's close to the holidays. Give us a break. Um, be be kind to your fellow human this time of year. <laughs> but thank you so much. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll catch you again soon.